0: This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM.
1: This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here is your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project, and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman.
2: Rebecca Henderson is the John and Natty MacArthur University professor at Harvard University, where she has a joint appointment at the Harvard Business School. She's also a research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Rebecca is an expert on innovation and organizational change. And her research explores the degree to which the private sector can play a major role in building a more sustainable economy, particularly focusing on the relationships between organizational purpose and innovation and productivity in high-performance organizations. She teaches a course called Reimagining Capitalism, Business and the Big Problems at Harvard, and this course has grown from 28 students to over 300, and she's now under contract for a book tentatively titled, Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. In this episode, Rebecca and I talk about the ways in which firms have always been values driven, even if that value was solely profit. She notes that companies that are actively trying to make a difference beyond their bottom line Companies that don't view a social purpose as distinct from their business aims end up with a more engaged and productive workforce. She observes that society, particularly led by millennials, is increasingly demanding that companies serve a social purpose that benefits all their stakeholders, including employees, customers, and the communities in which they operate. And when firms take this approach... There are benefits for employees in their lives beyond work. Rebecca is optimistic, if not hopeful, about the long-term, if we can take the long-term view and not focus entirely on immediate shareholder returns. And that is what we are trying to do on on this show, with this podcast, is to help all of us think a little bit further, about what it means to take the larger view. So now, get set to listen to and learn from a leading economist making the case for a sustainable capitalism. What that means for all of us, for society, for companies, for employees, and for their lives beyond work, it's Rebecca Henderson. Welcome to Work and Life.
0: Ooh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Thank you for inviting me to the show.
2: Oh, absolutely. Thank you for taking the time to, to be with me and to inform uh, the conversation here and, and our listeners. So let's, let's dive right into what it means to reimagine capitalism. What's, what's the big idea?
0: The big idea is that for too long, we've thought if we simply maximize profits, we will, well, maximize profits. But it's becoming increasingly clear that until and unless firms take account of the ways in which the world is changing and the need to think about a much broader range of outcome and to think about their customers and their employees and the effect they're having on the world in in new ways, uh, not only will they not maximize profits, but we will have a serious social problem. Hmm. Um, I think that's the bottom line. Mm
2: -hmm. A social problem that will have ramifications in all aspects of our lives, I
0: I I structure the course around uh, what I call the three big problems. And the first problem is we're running through environmental resources much faster than we can afford to with climate change as exhibit number one. And problem number two is we're looking at massively increasing inequality and continued poverty. And problem number three is our institutions don't seem to be up to dealing with either of these problems. Mm. Um, And so I really argue that there's a strong business case for firms to step into this gap and that it might make a real difference in the long term.
2: Uh, a necessary uh, difference to, to complement whatever our, our political and, and social institutions are, are able to, to do to respond to these big, massive, light, existential problems that, that you've just identified.
0: Well, these are existential problems. And I think, Stu, you've picked up on something really important, which is in the end, we're not going to solve them without significant changes in our culture and our institutions and our way of thinking about the world. But I've come to believe that that business could be a powerful ally in driving the kinds of changes we need. Mm -hmm. Um, It sounds grandiose, but, you know, we're out of easy solutions. So I think we need to look for hard solutions. And this Mm -hmm. might be one of them.
2: Well, I, I mean, it, it is big, uh, and I don't know if I would concur on the it being grandiose. It's it seems like it's a necessary issue, and it's certainly, in my experience with with clients and especially with students here at Wharton, uh, this these concerns are top of mind and uh, very much a part of the discourse here. So, it's not surprising to me that your course has uh, exploded in interest. Um, how, how long have you been teaching it, and um, how has it changed uh, in, in recent, recent iterations?
0: So I first started teaching it um, six years ago with just the 28 students. Mm-hmm. And um, in the first few years, suggesting that business could make a real difference and needed to make a real difference— um, was a little bit of an uncomfortable one. The students would look at me thoughtfully and go, oh, nice idea, Rebecca, mm-hmm. I'm not too convinced. Uh, now the students are completely passionate about these ideas, as you said. Um, mm-hmm. they, they've come to believe, I think, that it's really important we, we rethink uh, the relationship between business and the rest of society and how we think of our role as business people. And as you say, that it's, it, it's necessary I'm reminded of a conversation I had with a publisher in in New York when I was out peddling my book. Mm -hmm. And it's a big deal, prestige publishing house. And the editor looked at me and he said, Rebecca, business saves the world? Are you kidding? Do you read the papers? Mm. You know, this idea that this is a very unlikely place to look for for very significant solutions. And I, I looked at him and I said, what I say to everyone, which is, you know, do you have any better ideas? We, we need to move. And business is an institution with enormous power and global reach. And and I think this is key, and this is something that you've been surfacing in your podcast a, a lot, that managing in this new way will, in fact, significantly increase the odds of much more innovation, much mm-hmm. more productivity, mm-hmm. not to mention giving, giving all of us a sense of meaning in our lives that I think can be, can be really central.
2: Absolutely. Uh, it is a topic that, that comes up a lot here. The, the quest for work uh, that is meaningful, not just personally, but but for the world around us. And that ha- that's a hallmark of, of uh, the current generation of people coming into uh, the workforce. But I think it's clear that that's an issue that most awful people do care about. So what has changed in the last half a dozen years that the zeitgeist seems to have shifted and the sense of urgency is greater now and that there's not this same kind of uh, polite skepticism that you encountered uh, at first? What's different now?
0: I think it's a confluence of factors. One is, I think, the recent election with the election of a president who is very firmly committed to not making progress on a lot of these issues um and i I think that has catalyzed a lot of people particularly around the environmental Mm -hmm. issues i think the state of the science has really shifted with the recent report from the uh international commission on climate change really saying that we don't have the time that we thought we had Mm -hmm. i think that's played a big role I think the accumulating evidence that there's a better way to run the firm and that that really has effects on the bottom line. So the exploding interest in purpose-driven businesses, which mm-hmm. I know is something you've talked about on the show, mm-hmm. is part of what's playing into this. Mm-hmm. And I, I think some of it is the millennials sort of coming into their own, looking around and going, wait a moment, what, what kind of world is this? What kind of rules are you playing by? I mean, I remember my own son when he was nine. Um, we were sitting together watching a program on electric cars. Hmm. And he looked at me and he said, Mom, why don't we all just switch to electric cars tomorrow? And I looked at him and I had, you know, how do you have a, a nuanced conversation about organizational inertia and the difficulty of change with a nine-year-old? But at, but at root, his, his question was the right question. Hmm. Why do we not change? We know there's a better way to run firms. We know that we can fix the environmental problems with a relatively small amount of money. Why don't we change? And that that kind of incredulity is what I see in my students, which is we can do this a lot better. Why don't we move faster?
2: So what what's the answer to the question uh, that you just raised? And that is, you know, where is the... The, the primary the pri- where are the primary sources of resistance to waking up and making the kinds of adjustments that are needed because you know corporate social responsibility has been uh, a part of our our discourse and our action in most of leading companies for the last couple decades few decades let's say um, <clears throat> what what is changing now or what what are what are the hurdles now or where's the um, the opportunity to ignite real action to take seriously the social purpose of the private sector?
0: That's a lot of questions. I know. So let me begin, and we can, uh, we okay. can take it one at a time. Thank but, you. Uh, but let me start by saying that I, I think it's really important to put front and center that we mustn't separate social purpose from the purpose of the firm. That if you think back to the deepest roots of the legitimacy of firms, why do we let firms operate? Why do they have the legal advantages they do? Why are we excited about capitalism? The original framing was because it brings us prosperity, wealth, and personal freedom. You can work for anyone you like. You're not in hock to anyone. This is not a feudal society. Mm -hmm. The competition between firms means there's immense opportunity for people who want to work at whatever they want to work at. Plus, it generates a huge amount of wealth and prosperity. So the capitalist system was always rooted in values. You know, sometimes people say to me, well, you know, can we really have a values-driven capitalism? Let's keep values out of it. Let me just maximize profits. Mm -hmm. But maximizing profits is a values-driven idea. The original idea was, you know, free markets are incredible. I mean, I say to my students, they're one of the great inventions of mankind, um, that the enormous innovation and wealth that we've generated comes from the play of firms freely competing and trying to maximize profits. So it was always in some ways a values-driven enterprise. But what we have now is that firms are, and I'm going to use a technical term, but they're sort of what I would say generating externalities. So if you're running a firm... You're
2: talking economics to me now, and I'm... Yeah, I I'm think talking the economics. Only... Let
0: me back off. No, no economics. It's okay. So it I, I
2: think I'm the only <laughs> professor at the Wharton School who has never taken an economics class. So so <laughs> please do back well, up.
0: That, that should be a badge of honor. Let me back <laughs> up and not. put it in English. It's not. Definitely not. And let me say, if you're making your money by pumping carbon dioxide out of the window and dumping trash into the river and paying people less than a living wage, that's not maximizing either prosperity or freedom. That is, if the, if, if the free market becomes totally out of balance from the rest of society, it's no longer meeting its original goals. So for me, this is not about CSR, Um, you know, do something nice on the side. You have a little bit of social responsibility. This is fundamental to the identity of what it means to be a firm. Mm -hmm. And so it's absolutely a business case. Well, then you ask me the question, okay, so if it's so great and the students are so keen and there's lots of money, why is nothing happening? Well, here I draw on my 20 years studying innovation. Um, I was the Eastman Kodak Professor of Management at MIT, which was a complete coincidence, but deeply ironic, because that's mm-hmm. what I studied. Mm-hmm. For 20 years, I studied firms like Kodak that could see that the world was changing and yet had enormous difficulties dealing with it.
2: So the irony is in the, the, the sponsor, the funder, uh, and what happened to, to that, that institution?
0: Well, yes. I mean... Kodak, at its uh, height, people said of it, there was nothing more profitable that was legal. <laughs> and it was an incredibly successful firm. I did a lot of work with Nokia. Um, again, mm-hmm. at its height, you know, they were making a million cell phones a day or a week. I mean, just a huge number. They were a third of the Finnish stock exchange. Unbelievably successful firm. And yet, couldn't seem to change when the world is changing. I think we're seeing the same phenomenon now. And I think we're on the edge of a significant transformation, just as Kodak lost when we moved from conventional film to analog, and Nokia lost when we moved from simple cell phones to smart cell phones. We're seeing the same kind of resistive dynamics now, and they're just as disastrous for the firms who are embracing them now, I predict, as they were for Kodak and Nokia. And what are they? The first is simple denial. It's not happening. I saw that at Kodak. I saw that at Nokia. I saw that at General Motors. It's, I think, a natural human tendency to say, wait, the world isn't really shifting. Everything around me looks pretty much mm-hmm. as it used to. What's the big deal? So that's the first problem.
2: It's the denial of death, right? It's a, it is. In the stages of grief. I mean, this is the first stage is... Uh Wish that it wasn't true.
0: I, I couldn't agree more, Stu. I think a lot of the slowness to embrace threats like climate change is, in fact, driven by death anxiety. If we really take seriously what's likely to happen to the planet,
1: mm-hmm. it
0: can be so overwhelming. You feel like shutting down. And the temptation is just to keep doing what you've been doing. Yes. I, I could not agree more. So that's the first one, and Mm -hmm. that's a big one. Mm -hmm. The second one is the simple but old-fashioned idea that, yes, it might be happening, but I can't make money if I respond. My investors won't let me move. There isn't a decent business model. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know how to think about operating my firm in a way that is aligned with where we need to go Mm -hmm. as opposed to aligned with the old way. And that, again, it's just totally normal. It's very hard to think about new ways of operating.
2: Yes, it is.
0: Uh, you know, that that is just deeply structural. And you think about what it's like to run a firm. And, you know, I think about you and I, we just talk about firms, but actually running one, it's incredibly hard work. You're making payroll. You've got tons of competition. There's so much going on. And here, someone like me shows up and goes, whoa, you need a fundamental shift in your business model. And the temptation to say, whoa, ho, 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 not this week. Um, is, uh, is, is fundamental. And I think we have limited views about how to make money um, that really need to be refreshed. Mm-hmm. And then the third is, is the easiest one of all. I remember explaining my PhD thesis to a taxi driver. It was a very long taxi ride. And at the end he said, so wait, you got a PhD from Harvard for finding that large firms get fat and lazy and have trouble doing new things? He was much more complicated than that. But (laughs) But... at root, you know, we get we develop procedures and routines, Mm -hmm. ways of thinking about the world that just continually reinforce what we're doing. And, you know, week to week, I'm, I'm focused on making my numbers. I don't have time to think about doing things differently. I put my head down and I just do the same old thing. And, I mean, the last barrier, and then I'll stop before we all get deeply depressed. <laughs> the last barrier, and this is something I'm really trying to run at in my teaching and my research, is the idea that I can't make any difference. Mm-hmm. That the problem is too big, mm-hmm. and that any single individual can't make a difference. And one of the things I'm really trying to do in my work is is paint a picture show a theory of change such that you can see the connection from what you're doing in your business on the ground to what might happen at the industry and regional level, Mm -hmm. to what might happen in the capital markets? Like, can we get the whole of finance to think like, whoa, we have a financial interest in, in not toasting the world? And then, how might that help drive the kind of cultural and political changes we need to really get us where we need to go? So you got and to think, think
2: globally and act locally, as the saying it, goes.
0: Yes, I'm sorry, that's exactly what I'm saying. Right, that, <laughs> but it's still true. Of course. Yeah.
2: Yes, but and uh, so, so let's talk, if we can, about what you what you do to help people and organizations get past <laughs> denial uh, you know, the, the, the lack of imagination, let's call it, or creative vision to be able to picture a different way, uh, and, and, and the sense of, um, hopelessness, I guess we could say of not being able to really make a difference because of of the grand scope and, you know, overwhelming nature of these, of these ills. How do you get past those?
0: So I think of it as a four-step process. Okay. And the first step is what I spent many years of my career doing, working with firms like Nokia. Like just wake up, see Apple coming at you. You need to act differently. Mm -hmm. And I think here the good news is we have an incredible secret weapon. Um, And what I observed in my 20 years of research is the single thing that made a difference that helped firms really generate the internal energy and the drive to really redo their business model, mm-hmm. it was a sense that doing that would make a big difference to someone, that the cust- it would really change how customers perceive the world. It would really shift the, the likelihood of the firm succeeding. If you could find a purpose for moving, then everything became easier. And I think what's so exciting here is that many people can see we really need to change. And that releases an enormous amount of emotional and intellectual energy. Mm -hmm. I mean, my early research suggests what makes the difference in firms that can move, high levels of trust, being able to see the whole system, real authenticity, um, and being able to, to make mistakes, pick yourself up and be committed to the good of the whole. I mean, I'm summarizing a ton mm-hmm, of research. and mm-hmm. Of course, there's a lot of nuance. But in general, if you can generate a, an aligned sense of where we're trying to get to, so you have a strong strategic sense of where we're trying to go, and strong mutual sense of trust, you can really move through these transitions in in really quite powerful ways. And I think that's what we're seeing with a number of the small startups that are... Are uh, are growing, so you see a firm like um, Revolution Foods or Chobani, where they feel no, we're really going to make a difference. It it makes it possible to move into entirely new business models. Think of all the people who, in the last 10 years, have put their lives and their livelihoods on the line to really make solar energy a reality. Um, you know, I knew a lot of those entrepreneurs and they said, well, you know, the business case, I'm not so sure this is going to be hard, but its I really want to do this. And because they knew it was the right thing to do and because they were working with people who were equally as committed, they were able to build billion-dollar businesses um, in a space which was initially a very tricky and difficult space.
2: Mm-hmm. So, so waking up is... And, and and the different ways that you bring ideas for having a greater a clearer sense of purpose that um that that is meaningful to the key stakeholders of the firm. Yes. That's that's one.
0: That's one. So that's step number one mm-hmm. is we're going to create what my colleague Michael Porter calls shared value. Mm-hmm. So a classic example would be um Mark Bertolini at Aetna saying, I'm really going to transform healthcare and here's how I'm going to try and do it, and really trying to align a lot of purpose behind that and really using that to change the business model. So that's step one.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Step two is what I describe, what I think of as the whoops moment. So suppose you're Nike. And you decide you're really going to get child labor out of the supply chain, you're going to build a just supply chain, and you pump energy into it, and you pump purpose into it, and you really try, and you discover that, whoa, if I'm the only one doing this, I put myself at a competitive disadvantage.
1: Mm-hmm. I have
0: to have all my competitors do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Or Unilever, when they said, you know, we have to stop deforestation, we have to stop buying conventionally produced palm oil, we commit to sustainable palm oil, great, but it put them at a competitive disadvantage because it was expensive and Mm -hmm. consumers weren't willing to pay more for it. So the kind of second stage is, whoa, the whole industry would be better off if we address these problems.
2: And so that motivates firms to create uh, coalitions? uh, that
0: Exactly exactly so you're seeing our firms joining together to try and improve education in their local region you're seeing in sectors like retail some of the big companies like target and walmart raising what they pay people and increasing the benefits and looking around at all the other firms and saying okay come on guys let's do it this together you know we have harmed the industry by pushing too hard
1: mm-hmm.
0: Um, you see it in mining and minerals where the firms are coming together and saying, OK, we, we have to stop the human rights violation in the supply chain. Let's all move together mm-hmm. and then we can get that done.
2: What are the other two key elements of uh, what, what, what needs to be done?
0: I think the uh, the third element is we need to rewire measurement and finance. Um, one of the reasons that we're in trouble is we look only at what's been traditionally measured. And we need to mm-hmm. start evaluating firms on a much broader range of metrics. Uh, sometimes these are called ESG, environmental, social, and governance. But they basically look at how well a firm is Um, is managing in in other areas of its life, particularly in environmental and social arena. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And what we're seeing is some pretty exciting research suggesting that firms that uh, focus on these other issues and uh, and manage against them outperform their competitors. Mm -hmm. Um, And for a long time, this was pretty controversial work, but I think we're seeing more and more studies suggesting that this is indeed the case. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not sure whether it's Focusing on environment and social, that per se is driving the results, or the fact that the really forward-thinking managers who are attracting the best people are focusing on these issues, and that's powering up the entire business. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, one of the
2: with the the best and the brightest uh, who who have a sense of uh, a a larger purpose to their careers, to their work, being attracted to enterprises that are pursuing these aims.
0: Exactly. I mean, we, we know that um, at Unilever, the brands that are, are growing tw- um, twice as fast as others are their purpose-driven brands. Hmm. And that may be partly because, you know, purpose is really what consumers want and it's leading to some fantastic reinventions of some of their products. But I'm sure some of it is also because, you know, they are getting absolutely the best people focused on mm-hmm. those products. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that's part of what's what's going on here. Um, so I, th-
2: there's a, there's a lot more to rewiring the the metrics, uh, which you know people will and firms will do what they're measured on, and so shifting that uh, is that's happening, and it and it can happen. And there's more evidence to show that that's a good idea from all perspectives.
0: I I think it it it's people, you know, you get what you measure. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the more exciting developments of just the last uh, few weeks is the announcement that Shell Oil is actually going to shift how they incent their mm-hmm. managers. Mm-hmm. And they're going to say, no, a part of how we judge whether you're successful is whether total emissions go down. Wow. I mean, that, that's huge.
2: That is huge. I hadn't it's seen that.
0: Really huge. <laughs> All right,
2: so, and what is the fourth element? Because I, I want to ensure that we have some time to address sure. how, what this means for employees and how this spills into the other parts of their life.
0: Right, I mean, and that, that's so important. But just the fourth element, just yes. quickly, mm-hmm. is that firms need to get involved politically. So in the way that we're seeing firms come together and say, no, we really need global regulation of um, greenhouse gases. If we're going to lick carbon, if we're going to lick climate change, we need government action because the problem is too big for firms to solve alone. And so we're saying that for the good of long term business, for our good, you must give us some kind of um, regulation that will reduce carbon emissions in the long term and you can see businesses sort of gradually becoming more politically engaged around for example gender issues um and really hmm. putting a stake in the ground and saying no discrimination on LGBTQ is that's not what we do we don't think that's good business we don't want to work with with places that do that so in in my wildest imaginings, but I think this could really happen.
2: This is a reimagining, Rebecca. This
0: is a reimagining. But, but please go, right?
2: Please keep going.
0: Right. This is a reimagining. It beca- you know, no one would stand up in public and say, well, you know, I use children in my supply chain. Yeah, it's a bit kind of messy, but they're really cheap and, you know, they're easily replaceable. You cannot say that. Mm-hmm. No business would say that. No business would act that way. And one can imagine that that becomes true of a whole range of issues. Climate change would be an obvious one. You can see it starting to happen with waste. The idea that mm-hmm. there's going to be, you know, five times more plastic in the ocean than there is fish. People just saying, like, that's not okay. It's got to be fixed. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: and and that government regulation is part of the solution.
0: Government regulation is part of the solution. We've we've sort of talked ourselves into thinking that government is bad. I mean we need transparent accountable democratic government that can produce the kinds of regulations and um, and support for business to support it in doing the right thing Um, and that that's absolutely step number four
2: all right well that that is an ambitious agenda and I know that you have lots of evidence of outcroppings of these movements in our in our private sector how, how does this affect the people who are a part of such enterprises? We talked at the, at the beginning, uh, just touched on how this creates a greater sense of meaning. What does that look like? What does that feel like? And how does it affect uh, 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 one's sense of identity and purpose uh, at work and beyond?
0: Such a good question. I think... The strongest effect is that when you start to work on these issues, mm-hmm. even if it's in something that feels pretty small, like mm-hmm. starting an initiative inside your organization to really look at energy conservation,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, let's change the light bulbs, let's think about how we schedule our trucks, let's, you know, be mm-hmm. careful about the, th- the thermostats. Once you start acting, you feel hope. I think a lot of people are walking around with a kind of deep sense of dread and despair. Mm-hmm. And it's, it really is striking to me that the people who are working in businesses that are moving to try and make a difference are so much happier and really? so much more hopeful. It's really striking.
2: Where do you, can you elaborate on that? Like what the evidence is that you have of that, whether it's anecdotal or otherwise?
0: Oh, well, the systemic av- evidence I have is about the relationship between um, productivity and purpose. And I think there's really quite strong evidence that, that purpose increases productivity. But in terms of happiness, no, it's all anecdotal, but, mm-hmm. but it's real. You know, I'm a professor at the Harvard Business School. I meet hundreds of executives And uh, it used to be when I would go into a a room of mixed executives and I'd say, "Okay, who here has a sustainability effort?" You know, five people would put up their hands. Now I say, "Who's here is focused on sustainability and is it core to your business?" Now you're getting half the room, and people are just so passionate about what they're doing Hmm. because I think isn't all of these things something looks impossible until you start. I mean, the way we learn to get fit is we, okay, get ourselves to the gym or get ourselves to start walking. And once you do that, the next step doesn't seem so hard. Right, And you have company on the journey. I mean, it, it's mm-hmm. great to hang out with other people who are also trying to drive positive change.
2: It, it is a great thing. It's fundamental to what I've been teaching for decades in in terms of how people make change at the micro level of their own life and world at work and in their families and their communities. And the one of the fundamental ideas is the notion of the, sm- the power of the small win yeah. and how by taking some intentional action toward a purpose that you care about – That's going to influence and and create value for you, your family, uh, your work, and and our world. That is deeply energizing, and you gain a greater sense of confidence. and uh, I loved how you used the word hope, because that is indeed what uh, what leaders uh, you know that's that's their currency, right? Is is uh, they deal in hope. I think it was Napoleon said, and so. Um, by by taking some small action, you you go you move from despair to the sense of possibility that things could exactly. be better.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
2: So, how do you advise people then? To, I mean, you gave some wonderful examples on the energy side. What other kinds of things, perhaps, what you have your students do, uh, organizations that you work with, what other ideas uh, for action have? Uh, are part of the repertoire?
0: So um, the, the sort of energy and looking for cost savings is a good, reliable place to start mm-hmm, in many mm-hmm. organizations. Another great place to start is thinking about, um, and again, it depends what business you're in, but if you're in a, um, a consumer-facing business, uh, how are you communicating to your consumers about what you're doing, hmm. both in terms of the upside, that is, how what you're doing is helping to build uh, a better and more sustainable world, and also using the reverse, which is turning around to your colleagues and saying, you know, if they find out we're doing X, and that's all over social media tomorrow, that, that's not so good.
2: It's going to hurt us.
0: It's going to hurt us.
2: Reputationally, you know? legitimacy, and, and, in, and in sales.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And looking for those places, both where you're vulnerable, you know, we, are there places where we're really paying people too little and not treating them well? And how will our customers feel about that? And then how can we highlight what it is that we're doing well? And how can we use this? And I think this is critical, and this is an act of strategic imagination. How can we change what we do so that we make taking care of our customers or our suppliers or our community, a source of advantage, and and really make that something that's our own. And I've seen firms do that in, I mean, this is classics, too. You will know this. Small groups get together and sort of brainstorm, like, mm-hmm. how could we do this differently? Mm-hmm. You know, how could we really rejig our product or our service so it really meets new needs in new ways? But paying our people decently, making the supply chain is making sure the supply chain is not creating trouble. Um, and that 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 sounds like a big thing to do, but when when you pull a group of people together who say, "Look, we can run this business in a better way," you often see an enormous amount of creative energy come out of that.
2: so where uh, where should one you know, start? Uh, because i'm I'm certain there are people listening who are thinking, Yeah, I'd like to feel like I'm contributing to the solution, not the problem, uh, through what I do every day in my part of the private sector. Uh,
0: Where do I begin? So I think there's a couple of places to begin. One is it really depends on what industry you're in. Mm -hmm. So depending on what industry you're in, I'd look around for those firms that seem to be doing something different. You can look at the list of most admired firms or most sustainable firms. Um, shameless plug for my own institution. Look at the HBS cases. We have you know, over 100 cases of firms creating shared value in different ways in different industries. Mm-hmm. So looking around, for examples is, mm-hmm. um is one way to approach it. A second way is to be problem-focused. That is to look at your business and to say, okay, if someone was looking at us from the outside, where are we creating trouble? Where are we and our competitors creating trouble? So uh, <laughs> this this is going to be um, – this is one of my favorite examples. There's a company in Norway called Norsk Gevenning, Dengeng um and uh, – Eric, the CEO, took over the company, looked around and found that everyone was cutting corners everywhere. So this is in the mm-hmm. waste removal business.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It, you know, people were just cutting corners, dumping stuff in the fjords, mislabeling waste. I mean, it was just a total mess. And he was told, well, it's always been this way. You can't do it differently. That's just the way the business is done. And he you know, started to completely rethink, this is just waste collection. And he said, whoa, th- this could be like the resources for the future. We could double down on recycling. We could mm-hmm. go to a whole different way of how we think about what waste is and how we can use it. And he was able to move Norskevening to be one of the biggest recycling firms hmm. in uh, in Northern Europe. And he got, I mean, talk about the talent. He said, you know, that that he could hire anyone he wanted to work for him. And Why? Why? Yes. Because they were turning waste from being an incredible problem into being a major part of the solution.
2: And And so just to underscore it because I think this is essential to like the employee sort of psychological contract and sense of identity that emerges or that changes when you're a part of a purpose-driven enterprise, what happens that to, to how you feel about yourself when you're a part of oh. such an enterprise?
0: to you go from sort of putting your head down and getting through your days because you need the paycheck and yes it's not great and you see stuff happening that you don't like but you sort of wall yourself off from it you shut yourself down and I think in so many firms that's happening to a place where work becomes a way to express something you think is really important with a group of people who share your value mm-hmm who are committed to the success of the whole enterprise and to the difference it can make in the world. I mean, I wish I could tell you I had careful survey data on this, but you just have to walk into the firm and you feel it. Mm -hmm. You feel the sense of joy and possibility and excitement.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: It's just a different way of living. And, and that's why at root, if you ask me, are we going to be able to make this transition? That's why I think we're going to be able to make it. So, um, we know now, it's a solid finding in the economics research, that the 10% of, the top 10% of most productive firms in any industry are about twice as productive as the bottom 20%, even after you control for the same inputs, the same kind of capital equipment, the same kind of educational background, Mm -hmm. that the most firms are like two times as productive. I spent 20 years in windowless conference rooms with other economists trying to make this result go away. We called it the firm effect, Mm -hmm. and we couldn't get rid of it. And so eventually the economists said, okay, okay, it's real. I I know people in organizational behavior have known this for a long time, but you know what economists are like. You can really measure it. No comment. You don't believe. And then we find that this difference in productivity is correlated with, do you have high levels of trust? Do you have high levels of communication? Do you reward performance in a thoughtful and graduated way? And It's the firms that can adopt those kind of high performance work practices that are way outperforming everyone else. And then you ask, well, why doesn't everyone do it? And the reason everyone doesn't do it is because acting in that kind of way this very high levels of trust. I know you had uh, a great podcast with Aaron Ain talking about mm-hmm. you know, just respect your people, mm-hmm. trust your people. Tell them they can take as much vacation as they want because that's a huge signal of trust. Mm-hmm. And what do you get back from that? You get people who say, I'm not just going through the motions. I can bring all of whom I who I am to work. I'm part of something that's really making a difference in the world. And I absolutely will trust you. I will take the risks. I will go the extra mile. I will talk to you in order to really, you know, turbocharge this organization. And I'm and sure I,
2: that the sense of trust is enhanced by the degree to which firm is committed to doing good in the world if, if you well, believe that yes. you're a part of a, a group that is committed to positive social change you're going to you're going to believe that there are good intentions of, of of all those who are part of it
0: i mean it it has to be authentic mm-hmm. you know but most people are pretty good at picking up in authenticity
2: right right but if
0: you really believe it if if like the leaders are really putting themselves on the line to make a real difference in the world then you're going to trust them in a way that's quite different than if they say, well, you know, we, we're maximizing shareholder value. You know, Trust me, we've all got to work together in a new way because I've heard that trust is this really good thing yes. to have. Yes. Sounds know? like
2: a poster on the wall that nobody reads or believes.
0: Exactly. Yes. But if you, if you see people consistently saying, no, we really mean this and we're going to take risks in pursuit of this strategy mm-hmm. and we're going to consistently follow through, then I think you can persuade the people who work with you to, to really engage in a very different way,
2: or at least to try, so at least to
0: try, no so guarantees.
2: Rebecca, your optimism is uh, is very much apparent, and I hope it's warranted. Uh, how would you um, kind of you know, just briefly summarize your sense of of the future of of the sustainability of the private sector in in capitalist uh, societies?
0: So I like to say I'm hopeful, but not optimistic. Okay. <laughs> In the sense that the optimist is like, don't worry, kick back, it's going to be fine. Mm -hmm. I think if we do that, it's not going to be fine. I think there is a chance, a very real possibility, that we will wake up to what we're doing to each other and to the planet and decide we want to do something different. I mean, humans are amazing. When you think about it, I mean, we've gone from living in small w- walled villages and killing each other at scale to this incredibly complicated global society mm-hmm. in which the idea that women are people and people with different colored skins are also people is sort of mostly accepted.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, this, this enormous move forward. And, and so I think humans are smart. I don't think we're going to burn the whole planet down. Or um or destroy our societies, I mean, it requires focusing on a sense of us rather than just me and focusing on the long term rather than just right now mm-hmm. but humans are good at that we We do it in our families, we do it in our communities. If we can move into business in a way that 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 holds business as part of the broader society. I think we can really shift.
2: I think so too and I'm glad that you're doing the work that you're doing to help uh, accelerate that process. I have one more question and it's a question I've been asking all my guests this year, uh, the year that I like to think of as the year of accountability. So um, what, if anything, do you do to hold yourself accountable for living and working in accord with your core
0: values? What a great question. So um, (laughs) I've insulated my house and tried to drastically reduce my energy consumption. Nice. I try and minimize my flights. And when I do fly, Mm -hmm. I buy offsets, which I think is important. Mm -hmm. So, no, I think that's really important. You know, I, I teach about climate change. So I think it's really important that I try and reduce my climate profile. This sounds like a little thing, but I try and make sure that everyone I work with I treat respectfully as a human being and is paid a decent amount (laughs) and um, you know I don't think of people as things
2: those are three wonderful examples thank you for sharing them and thank you so much for being a part of the show Uh, where's the best place for listeners to follow what you're doing these days um, and and find out more about your work
0: So my website, reimaginingcapitalism.com, will be going live later this week. So that's a great place to go.
2: Fantastic. Rebecca Henderson, thank you so much for joining us on the show tonight.
0: Thank you very much, Stu. It's been a pleasure.
2: I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Rebecca Henderson and that it provoked your thinking about how you and your career or your business life fit into the larger world in these radically changing times. So here is a challenge for you, an invitation. Think about this. Is your work part of the solution to making the world more sustainable from an environmental, social, or economic perspective? What one change, large or small, Can you begin now to make, in the world of your work, your career, to help serve the greater good? What happens when you make this adjustment, even if just in your thinking? How does that feel? And do you start to imagine a different way to construe what it means for you to be successful, for you to be productive? I would love to hear your reactions, your thoughts about this. Email me, friedman at Wharton.upen.edu or you can find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio Powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, go to workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, visit totalleadership.org and check out my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with your friends, your family, and your coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me.
0: For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.